Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. We're rolling on with episode 149 this week. Jeff Striegel is our guest of the Motor Racing Network and Berlin Raceway. What an interesting fella, I tell you. You think you know a guy, and then you speak with him on a podcast, and... You learn a whole lot more. I learned a lot in my research. I learned a lot talking to him. And I think you guys will be surprised pleasantly with all the things you learn about and from Jeff in this conversation. But before we do any of that, we got to pay homage to the convertible king. Who is that? You may be asking yourself. Well, you ain't the only one. I was asking myself that too until I heard this week's Wayback segment with Papa Siegel. Take it away. Thank you, Duve. Welcome, everyone, to episode 149. Today, we put some nitrous in the tank and hit the way, way back button to remember convertible king Bob Wellborn. Wellborn won nine cup races in the 1950s and 60s, with five of those coming in his trusty number 49. But Wellborn is best remembered for his time in the ragtops. He won 19 races in the short-lived Convertible Series and was its champion in 1956, 1957, and 1958. It's said that Wellborn was as well-known for having a cigar in his mouth all the time as he was for his number 49. I don't know if he was a poker player, but apparently it was his tell. If the stogie was small and frayed from chewing on it, Wellborn was having problems with his car. If the cigar was new and full and he was puffing on it, it was a sign that he was doing pretty well. But look out if he was rolling it around in his fingers because he likely was working on something and had found an edge on his competition. You may not have heard of him, but Bob Wellborn was voted one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers in 1988. You know what else is great? Memorial Day Sunday. Get up early and enjoy, in turn, the Monaco Grand Prix, the Indy 500, and the Coke 600. My favorite day. Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad. Yes, I am so excited for this weekend. It's always my favorite racing day of the entire year. You got breakfast in Monaco, which, eh, it's a snooze over race. You got lunch in Indianapolis, and you got dinner with a nice cold Coke in Charlotte for the Coca-Cola 600. I will be watching all the racing action that I can possibly consume this entire weekend, but definitely for sure on Sunday. Let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned reggaeton! And throw it straight over to our interview with Jeff Striegel of the Motor Racing Network, noted Michigan State Spartan fan. By the way, he also helps run the show at Berlin Raceway. As I mentioned in the open, guys, a very, very intriguing figure in the world of motorsports media, broadcasting, racetrack operations. 
We talked about his time when he was a race car driver, why he started so late, when that eventually stopped, how he transferred over into the broadcasting side of things, getting started in the blue shirts with MRN, the relationships that he was able to grow and hone in his time over there with some legends such as Eli Gold, Barney Hall, Joe Moore, Mike Bagley, right? We know Baggy, but he has so much to offer in this episode. We talked about so much more than what you think you know about Jeff Striegel, just scratching the surface, and I'm sure that we're going to have to have him back on to even dive deeper into some other of his charitable actions with racing awareness and how he balances all these different things in his life. But this hour plus is some of the best stuff that I've heard from Jeff in my time listening to him live on radio, on different shows, analyzing the sport. But we dove into him and his career on this very podcast here this week. So without further ado, here's my chat with Mr. Do-It-All, Jeff Striegel. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today. He is a racetrack operator. He is a broadcaster. He is most importantly a Michigan State Spartan fanatic. I dress for the occasion. It is Jeff Striegel. How the heck are you, my friend? Wonderful backdrop you got there at Berlin Raceway, by the way. Yeah, thank you, Davey. I love the shirt. Um, you know, four-year degree for you. That is cool. Um, the backdrop, yeah, you know, I'd like to have been sitting outside today, but we have rain mm -hmm. again here in West Michigan. But it's great to be on with you. Great to have you on. I want to talk about so much with you because I feel like a lot of people that may follow the sport closely, listen to MRN every week, they know you, they know your voice, they know what you do in and outside a little bit, the world of NASCAR, but there's so much more that meets the eye with you. So let's go all the way back to before you were a broadcaster, before you did all this charitable work, before you're running a racetrack, and before you started racing, because yes, you were a racer for a little bit. Where did your passion for motorsports come from growing up in Michigan? Well, I'll tell you what, it's right outside this door here. Uh, it would go way, way, way back. Uh, first time I ever walked onto this property here at the Berlin Raceway, I was 10 years old. My dad brought me to the track and I was hooked. Um, you know, and, I, and just because we're going into this particular weekend, I'll share this story, something I will never forget. And that is we used to sit, my dad and I would sit outside backyard picnic table with that little AM transistor radio. Mm -hmm. And he would twist in the Indianapolis 500. And I just, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Never saw it. You know, back then I'm much older than you are, but back then we'd have to wait for, you know, wide world of sports to give us a brief look at what happened. Yeah. Of course it was tape delayed. We already knew what happened. But it really does go all the way back. You know, it's something my dad had a passion for. He brought me and I was interested, instantly hooked. So I know that you started racing a bit later. You said you were 10 years old when you first went to Berlin. Most people, you know, nowadays were accustomed to Jeff drivers starting at six years old, seven, eight right. years old racing when they before they even could walk. Right. Mm -hmm. You started mm -hmm. a bit later in the game and I think it was 23 years old. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, we were, it, it, again, it was with my dad. We were sitting here watching racing and there was a class of cars that were running that night that were called the Namra Formula Indies. And they looked cool. They were fast. And most importantly, Davey, they were affordable. You know, it was something that you could actually get into. 
So uh, I went to my dad. I said, you know what? We got to have one of these. And he goes, Jeff, can't do it. Just can't do it. Can't afford it. So I went out and bought a motorcycle. <laughs> True story. I had it for maybe a month and a half. Phone rings. It's my dad. He says, here's the deal. You get rid of that motorcycle. We'll go buy a race car. I said, motorcycle is going on up for sale tomorrow. And, and we did. Um, you know, it's crazy because when we talk about the Indy 500, Scott Goodyear started in that same class, the NAMRA Formula Indies. He was gone by the time I got into it, mm -hmm. um, but just. And uh, you may know Tim Steele, um, of course, the ARCA champion, uh, one of the all-time winningest drivers in ARCA went on to drive some cup, uh, stepped in when Davy Allison lost his life. And uh, Tim Steele and I came into Formula Indies about the same wow. time. So I got a chance. That's where I met Tim. But yeah, you know, that was uh, that was something that I'll never forget. It was so much fun. Traveled around Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, and and just ran the circuit there until the family came along and then it did become too expensive. Right, right. So I, I'm intrigued by this because, again, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you had professional aspirations of making it big time to the Cup Series or open wheel IndyCar Formula One. But starting that late by industry standards is pretty taboo. And that doesn't really happen a lot of the times. Even back then, you know, I can only think of a couple drivers off the top of my head that are in the quote unquote modern era. Greg Biffle, I think he started pretty late out on the West Coast as well. Did you right. have aspirations of maybe moving up further and doing this for real professionally, or was this just totally a hobby for you and your dad? Hobby. Um, we wanted, you know, we wanted to move up, but we didn't ever dream of racing, you know, on TV or on radio on a Sunday afternoon. So yeah. we were just, we were just having fun. We wanted to run a midget. Uh, you know, at one point we looked at that, you know, I always dreamed of running a super modified. That is the car, in my opinion, um, never happened. I stayed with what we had and ran for, I don't know, I guess it was 10, 11, 12 years. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, slowly started just to get out of it. And that's kind of where it led to the broadcasting side of things. You didn't suck because I read that you won a championship in 1986. So you, you had to have some form of talent and some equipment, some manpower to be able to do that. How good and how competitive were you? I'll allow you to brag on yourself a little bit. Don't be shy. <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> I can tell you that when, you know, the first two years that, that I did it, I thought, what in the world am I doing? I mean, I was just awful, awful, yeah. awful. And um, we uh, went out and bought a brand new car. And that made a big difference. You know, it was like, all right, we got, if we're going to compete at the highest level, we've got to have good equipment. So we went out and bought good equipment and that made all the difference in the world. Um, you know, I, it, it's no different. I don't think than anybody doing it today. I had to sit, shut up, listen, watch and figure out, you know, how I could become better. And, and uh, by the time we got to 85, Three years into it, we were starting to win races. And 86, we won the championship and we won quite a few races after that. But at, at that point, we were almost racing on a part-time basis where, you know, we were following the series, but at the same time, there were other things that I wanted to do. Yeah. So, you know, we're we're all right. Yeah. 
I would say so. So in 86, was that a track championship? I know you said you traveled around the Midwest. What kind of championship was that? And what division, what car were you guys running? Well, it was it was the Formula Indy, and we ran a series. So we ran South Bend, Berlin, Kalamazoo, Sandusky, Toledo. Um, went down and ran to Indianapolis uh, Speedrome. Wow! So we were, you know, all over the place. So it was a series championship. Got it. Okay, and I know obviously it came to a point right where money came into play, your family came into play. All these different factors ultimately led you to hang up the helmet in that point in time. Um, again, you know, starting as late as you did, it wasn't necessarily anything that you had professional aspirations to make it super, super big time. But it clearly was a hobby that was a bit more than just a hobby. You know, this is your passion. This is your life. I wonder how hard it was for you at that point in your life to to take a step back and realize, okay, I may have to give this up. You know, it was one of those deals where this series, the club, the organization that I was involved with, they were starting to do some different things that just made it, you know, the series, the club today doesn't even exist. Mm -hmm. And it was about the time that I was getting out of it. I just didn't like the direction that they were going. Um, Speed was everything for them. You know, there's a quarter mile racetrack in South Bend that you may or may not have been to. Um, we, when we ran a sub 10 second lap there, the owner at the time called us all together and he said, it's been great having you. We used to race there six, seven times a year for years. And he called us all together and he said, this is the last time we're going to race you guys. He goes, you're just way too fast. Hmm. And, and he was right. Um, and we tried to get people to recognize that and understand that, but they didn't or some of them didn't. And it just became a matter of, you know what, probably time to start doing some other things. And yes, at that time I had three very young children and, you know, it was a matter of packing them up every weekend and heading to Sandusky or, you know, wherever the schedule had us. So it wasn't super hard for you to deal with and reconcile with the fact that the racing part of your life was done. It just kind of was something that happened and you just dealt with it. You know, Davey, it was interesting because we were coming back from, I believe it may have been, um, there's a place called Angola in Indiana. And it was just my brother-in-law and I uh, had gone down to that particular race. And I don't remember how we did. And we were coming back and it was during the season. And I said, I've made a decision. This is two in the morning as we're heading back with the truck and trailer Mm -hmm. in the car. And he goes, what? And I go, I'm done. He goes, what? You know, I I just, I don't have that drive anymore. The the fire is gone for what we were doing. Yeah. And I said, I just feel like it's time to hang it up. You know, we've done everything we can do. Um, And that was the end of it. We did, you know, we, what we did at that point, we got rid of our car and I was fortunate. I had a couple of car owners call and say, would you want to drive our equipment? And I, I did that for about a year and a half. Didn't enjoy it at all. And it made it easy for me to say, okay, I'm done. I'm going to move on to the next chapter. So would it be fair to say then that you got a little bit more enjoyment out of the culture of racing, working on your own stuff, tinkering and doing all those types of things rather than just kind of showing up on race day and going? No doubt about it. Uh, you know, the, 
half the fun was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when we'd all meet in the garage and you know what that's like, you've been mm-hmm. there and you know, you're looking at your piece of equipment and saying, okay, we're a fifth place car. We're a 10th place car. We're a winning car. What are we going to do to keep that going? And when, when you're just driving for somebody else, you're working with their stuff, their money, their decision-making process. And right. It just, you know, it just something that didn't appeal to me. I think we had the best situation from, you know, 85 to 92 in that range. And we had fun and we did everything we could do. And it was just time to, to move on. Yeah. Not to age you, but 92. I mean, that was four years before I was born 30 years ago from right now. I'm sure that when you look back on those days, you probably look back on them pretty fondly because at that point, I know you had some worries in the world, but on paper, it's like you don't have a worry in the world. You're just going, you're racing, you're enjoying time with your guys. Those seem to be one of those times, looking back on it, hindsight's twenty twenty. but it's like, wow, those were really some of the glory days. I really was having fun at that point. Do you kind of feel the same way? When, when other racers talk about the glory days, they feel that way. I think there's not a racer out there that would disagree with this comment, and that is, I don't always remember what I had for dinner last night. <laughs> but I can remember what I qualified, you know, let, let's say it was at the Speedrome or yep. Sandusky or Kalamazoo. And you remember the you, losses more than the wins, of course. Oh, by far. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember by far and away, uh, Davey, <laughs> the nights we could have won, should have won, but didn't. Uh, the nights that we broke, uh, you know, after we qualified well. Yes, I do remember some of the wins, but for sure, you remember the ones that you didn't win more so than the ones that you did. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, let's talk a little bit about Berlin Raceway. It's the wonderful place that you are at right now. We see the wonderful lettering behind you. Uh, It's your home track. As you mentioned, this place kind of got you started on the career path and the life that you now live, which is entrenched in every facet of motorsports. I know you did some PA work there before you ended up getting an audition with MRN, coming back there now. But before the PA work started and in between when you were racing and when you were a fan there, how did your relationship with Berlin Raceway start? How did the relationship with the management people there start, the media people there start? How did everything blossom into what it is now and what it was back when you were working on the PA? Some of the media people that covered racing when I was out here racing with the NAMRA Formula Indies are still in the market today, believe it or not. They're, you know, basically my age. Yeah. Um, it gave me a, a great heads up with that because I've already already knew the media, many of the media people that are here. Um, the relationship, I, I, I think I got to tell you this first, is that after we sold the car, we came out here, we're out here watching the races on a Saturday night and I'm sitting here in the grandstands and I just said, this is not for me. I've got to somehow stay involved. <laughs> Don't know what that's going to be. And I'm, I'm sitting here listening to the PA guy and I, this is a true story. The PA guy worked here for 51 years. Yep. He was the original PA announcer, John Shipman, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go down and just ask him if, you know, he would care if I shadowed him, if he was interested in having a helper, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, can I call the heat races, read the commercials, whatever. And uh, so I went down there 
very nervous, very scared. Mr. Shipman, um, would you have any interest in having a helper? And he said, yeah, you know, I would. Um, what's your name? Da, da, da. And when I told him my name, he recognized it from racing out here. And he says, yeah. oh, good grief. I, you know, I thought you were a racer. No, uh, not anymore. So that was my start into something different than being a driver. And if it hadn't been for that moment, if he would have said no, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. And you know how that goes. That mm -hmm. one little door that opens up leads to the world. And for John Shipman to say, yeah, why don't you come on back next week and, you know, I'll find something for you to do. That gave me my next step. Kind of cliche, but it just shows you that if you don't ask, you may not get that chance. And you asked right. and you got that chance and look what you did with it. That's something that I've been a firm believer in throughout my career is there are things out there that people can do if they just simply put their mind to it, have enough ambition, like you just said, to go down there. I could have sat right up there and go, he isn't going to, you know, he isn't going to talk to me. He isn't going to need any help. There's no reason for me to go down and, and ask him anything, but I did. It worked out. Yep. And um, the crazy thing is I started working with him and he kind of pulled me aside and he said, just so you know, I'm probably going to make next year my last year. And you have the opportunity to step in and be the PA announcer at Berlin Raceway. Wow. And I thought, holy cow. I mean, what an opportunity. And that's exactly what happened. Um, he stepped aside and I stepped in and did it and had a great time. I, I will tell you this, that is something that I absolutely miss. I love what I do, mm -hmm. no doubt. But being a PA announcer here is, is something that I would do tomorrow in a heartbeat. How long did you end up doing it? One year. That's it. And the reason, one year, actually it was a year and a half because I shadowed him for the remainder of that year. Got it. And I took over for him the following year. So what had happened was there was a couple of little tiny AM stations that were doing broadcasting at the track. They wanted me to come on with them. And long story short, we were actually able to put together a deal that made it advantageous for me. Uh, this is where the whole MRN swing starts to come into play. Mm -hmm. But we were broadcasting from a, a little booth. Of course, these are all sweeps now. They were never here back when we were doing that. But uh, started broadcasting on a little AM station here in West Michigan. Next thing you know, we're getting calls from people um, what, that, are, that have got big FM sticks and going, we want, we want to carry this broadcast. We want a, an hour-long show during the week, and we want to carry you guys every Saturday. Saturday night, we thought, wow. holy man, we're, we're in. Yeah. And we ended up cutting a deal with uh, an FM station here and we're making money. And we never, that was never the goal. The right. goal was to come out here and call races and have fun. It's just a bonus, Next thing yeah. you know, next thing you know, here we are. So yeah. that led from PA and into calling the races. So how did MRN come into the picture? And I assume that they were pretty soon after that one year of you doing the PA kind of wrapped itself up. 
No, it was, uh, I think it probably was four or five years um, that had gone by. And one of the things that I said, because these guys had been doing it already, they wanted me to come in and broadcast with them. And I said, I'll do that, but we're going to do it MRN style. True story. They they wanted to, to do the broadcast where you and I are kind of doing what we're doing right now. We just yeah. sit here and shoot the ball and we'd say something about what was going on the track. And I'd ask you about the family. We'd talk about the Spartan football game. <laughs> and I said, I, I don't want to do that. If we're going to call the races, then we need to call the races uh, and do it right. And we did. And we brought actually brought in two pit road reporters, our former producer with the Motor Racing Network, Brian Nelson. Uh, who had no racing experience at all, walked in the door. That's how I got to meet him. That's how he ended up at MRN. Wow. And he goes, I want to I call the races. I've heard you guys on, on the radio. I want to be a part of it. So we had pit road reporters. We, were, we had a full team, and we were doing it MRN style. Awesome. Um, my buddy, George Keene, who was my co-anchor, he was, he was older than I was. He wanted nothing to do with MRN. He was enjoying what he was doing. And he said, you know what you ought to do? You ought to make an audition tape and let's send it into MRN. See if you get a call back. We did send it in David Hyatt, president of the motor racing network at that time, gave it a listen and called me up and said, do you want to come down and audition? And I said, heck yeah. And what was cool about it, Davey, to put an, a cap on this, he made the comment, I, I don't need to teach you how to do your job. You're already doing it like us. Yeah. Now I just want you to come down, audition, see how you fit in, see what you can do. You know, when you've got Eli Gold, Alan Bestwick, Joe Moore, mm-hmm. Jim Phillips, Winston Kelly, those guys around. So that's what led to MRN. That's really cool. Did When you implemented that MRN style broadcast at Berlin, did you have an idea or were you looking forward at all as to maybe I can parlay this into MRN or was it purely just they're the best in the business. I want to try to be the best in the business. What we're doing here, let's do it this way. It, it doesn't matter. And I think anybody here will tell you the same thing. It doesn't matter if we're racing, if we're broadcasting, if we're doing the PA, if we've got a party, if we've got, I don't care what it is. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it to the best of our ability. And you know, that goes back to what we were doing here. It's like, I'll do it, but if we're going to do it, I want to be the best short track radio broadcast coverage in the country. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to compare it to. Um, back then, we weren't traveling. I didn't know what you were doing or what he and she were doing around the country. I just right. knew that if anybody ever passed through our town and turned us on, that they'd say, wow, I don't know what this is, but this is good coverage. It led to the opportunity to move on, and and we had a heck of a lot of fun doing it. So I think I read that your audition with MRN came at Daytona with Joe Moore. That has that had to be a, a hell of an experience at the biggest track with one of the biggest names. I mean, talk about throwing you into the fire and saying, good luck, kid. Start learning. Uh, yeah, next thing you know, you're standing next to somebody who you idolize. Uh, Eli Gold was in the booth with Alan Bestwick. Funny story here. There's funny stories along the way, but everywhere we get there, we were told we were going to do the bush cars in a practice. Uh Like, all right, I know them. 
you know, I'll get to know them better, you know, study, get all ready to go. We show up that morning, first thing, first light of day. And David Hyatt walks in, he goes, guys, we do have a change uh, in our format. We're going to actually be calling the goodies dash race. Do you remember, Davey, the goodies dash series? It was before my time, but I know enough about it to know how different that is. Yes. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know them. Right. Okay. That is a series that was running predominantly in the South. I didn't know anybody at all. And they told me, and they're just put Jeff Gordon in the car, put Dale senior in the car, put AJ point in the car. We don't care, but that just, that doesn't sound right to me. So we end up going out. Joe Moore takes me out. We go to the top of the water tower. That's where we broadcast the 500 from years ago. Mm-hmm. And we go up there and Joe gets me all set up and he goes, call what you see. And I think there was actually Davey, like nine or 10 other people auditioning on that same day. Man. I was, I was not real nervous. And the reason was I had Berlin. And I had a full-time job at Gordon food service where I retired from after 21 years. Mm-hmm. If I made it, I made it. If I didn't, it wasn't going to be the end of the world. That may have been my key to success because Interesting. the other folks were literally throwing up in dumpsters. They were so <laughs> nervous. I'm not going to lie. So I get up there and, and again, I also had Joe Moore and there was nobody out there with me other than Joe. And uh, he goes, just do what you do at Berlin, call them. So what happens is I get about a lap in, you know, here comes so-and-so, so-and-so they're side by side for the lead as they hit the backstretch. The next lap I'm calling it, you know, Eli gold, here they come across the start finish line. And you know, they're running like nine wide Yeah. and they head off to turn one. We flip three cars, three flip them it's chaos. (laughs) And so here I am, you know, here comes Jeff Gordon. He's working on the inside of Mario Andretti. Holy crap. You know, (laughs) next thing you know, there's carnage. I have no idea what I said. It's a hell of an audition. (laughs) It happened twice though. We literally sat out there, waited. They cleaned up the whole thing. All right, guys, here we go again, going back under the green. Let's do this again. It, I swear, I swear, God's honest truth. <laughs> want them up again? They want them up again, and they're <laughs> flipping a car, too. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this is it. I'm done. I mean, I didn't know how to call anything like that. Yeah. You know, it's like we got one car flipping. There's This is awful. Blah. I don't have no idea what I said. <laughs> and I just I went home. Um, Joe was amazing. I, I went home thinking I'd never hear from them again. And it was probably a month later. Uh and my phone rings and it was David Hyatt. And he goes, like what you did? If you'd like to come on board, uh, the first opportunity I have for you is a Texas Motor Speedway in the turns. And I hung up the phone and I thought, oh my gosh. I mean, I've made it, I've made it. You're hoping that they so, wreck at Texas too and they're flipping over, I guess. No, I was not hoping for that. I called him. <laughs> I did the truck race, Davey. I called them cars yep, all I day long, notes, yeah. <laughs> all day long, all day long. And every time we go to a commercial break, they'd be like, Jeff. And I'd go, yeah, I know. I they're know cars. They're cars. You, <laughs> you don't have to tell me again. Yeah. Well, apparently they did because it didn't, it never settled in. Yeah. Um, I made it through. I made it through. They gave me another shot. 
and um, the rest is history. So I find that interesting. It, it makes sense, you know, the fact that there weren't nerves for the audition um, because you had things to fall back on. It wasn't necessarily the end-all, be-all. This was not your make-or-break moment because you had yeah. Berlin. You had a full-time job. You were, you were content in those things. When you got the job then, and once you started calling them trucks instead of cars, and you kind of got your feet under you for a little bit, were you nervous at all, or were you intimidated at all, being next to legends like Alan and Eli and Joe and all these other guys? Or did you pretty much take it in stride and say, look, I mean, we're here to do a job. Let's do the job. No, no, no. Your first, uh, your first analogy is the right one. Okay. When you show up, um, I do remember Mike Bagley. Uh, was the one who picked me up from the airport. And, you know, I was listening to Mike. I'm listening to Moody. I'm yeah. listening to those guys. And they're national broadcasters. And I remember getting in the backseat of that car, and I was nervous. I just, you don't want to be that guy that doesn't fit in. You don't want to be the guy that asks so many questions that everybody's like, okay, this dude just needs to shut up. <laughs> but you also... You absolutely didn't. I never, ever wanted to walk in there and have anybody ever say this guy thinks he's number one because I never felt that. I don't feel that way today. I never have and I never will. Mm -hmm. All I could do was try to learn. And to be honest, when you came in back then and, and we affectionately referred to it as the B team and the A team, the B team would handle the trucks uh, Xfinity, you know, obviously today, but, right. um, there were a lot more standalone events, Dave, mm -hmm. as you know, back then than what there were today, we'd head off and go do Nazareth or the Milwaukee mile, or we would go to Texas and do a standalone truck race. So I didn't, I really didn't see Eli a lot. I didn't see Alan a lot. That didn't happen until I got the call to, moved to turn four at Daytona. So, but by then I did feel comfortable, you know, with where I was at with the motor racing network, they had moved me to the booth. And that was really where I started getting the opportunity to work with Eli mm -hmm. because Eli would come and do some of the standalone stuff. So, but you know, the first time you sit down next to Eli gold, um, if you're not nervous, man, you got ice in your veins because yeah. I was, uh, probably first several times that I worked with him. When did the nerves go away? You said the first several times, but I assume it, it was kind of just like a, something that happens over time and you get more comfortable and you get more secure and you know that you're doing the job well. Was there one specific point where they went away or was it just a gradual process? No, because if they went away with Eli, they might come back with Barney Hall. Sure. They might come back the first time you do something that you hadn't done before um, came very comfortable with Eli. Um, you know, Mike Bagley and I hit it off immediately. He was a great friend right away. That helps, right? You know, you, you know, you're going to go do a double header at the Milwaukee mile, but you're looking at the work roster and you're seeing that it's going to be this guy and this guy or this gal. Right. And it's like, these are my friends. You know, they become friends. You're looking forward to it. And then you might see that, you know, Eli is in the booth. Uh, but at that particular point, Eli has become a friend. Uh, he, they're not just broadcast colleagues. Mm -hmm. They very quickly become part of your family. 
I think the nature of an MRM broadcast is like anything else in sports broadcasting. I consider it an art form. Uh, I had an audition on Pit Road like years ago, but even that had me a little bit nervous just because of how I have listened to MRN for years and the art of handing off. Um, you know, I watched, there was a video that was done. Uh, I think it was from a local Michigan station, but they interviewed you. They interviewed Mike. They interviewed a lot of people. And something right. that I didn't really put together until Mike put it into words was the inflection. And when the inflection goes down, that's when it's the handoff. One of those type of things. And I, I think that that is really an art form because like you mentioned in that same piece, your, your mics are always open and they're always Ooh. hot. And it's about having the chemistry with the same people on that broadcast to know when somebody's done, when to pick it up, when to hand it back off. I'm curious if you were able to learn that quickly, if that was something that you already had learned at Berlin and how you then, you know, improved on that skill once you were doing NASCAR races on a more regular basis. We were doing it here at Berlin and we were, we were doing it well because it was a co-anchor and I, so it was just bang, 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 bang sure. all the time. And, you know, you got to the point where you're trying to make it where they're there isn't a millisecond between when you leave your thought and I pick it up. So, you know, if, if they come rumbling off turn number four and they're side by side for the lead, bang, I know that that's where it's, you know, when he says they're side by side, I'm already, I know where he's going. Mm -hmm. Certainly today, you know, if baggy is, is in turn three and, you know, here they come through three and four, and they're side by side for the lead. I know what I almost know what he's going to say. Yeah, I know his voice inflection. I know roughly where he's going to drop. And I think that's something that we pride ourselves on a lot is that, you know, we can do a race in Texas. I'll go back to Kansas, you know, 400 miler. And I don't know that anybody stepped on anybody the entire broadcast. Yeah. It's rare when it happens. It does happen. There's no doubt. Mm -hmm. um, but it's rare. And it just that we've had people ask and, you know, obviously, Davey, I know you you've done your homework and you you've been there. Mics are hot. Nobody's talking in our ear. Nobody says, Davey, go. <laughs> it, you're just waiting for yeah. your moment. And you're pretty sure you know when it's going to come. Yeah. And there are times when, you know, I'm getting ready to drop them to Moody and turn one, you know, here they are side by side for the lead. They head to one. And I know he's cracking that microphone, getting ready to say something. And I turn and look and, but here comes William Byron to pit road. We'll pick that battle up for the lead. Steve post Byron on pit road, pit road. What are they saying? You know, they're, they're blowing up right. and it's just postman is ready. Kim is ready. Jason toy. They're all ready to go. They're just waiting for that handoff baton handoff, if you will. And they're off and running. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you've obviously worked the turns before you're now primarily in the booth for NASCAR cup races. I feel like having the knowledge of what it takes to be a turn announcer then in part makes you a better play by play booth announcer because you understand with the difficulty and, how it works in terms of handing it off and picking it up from the turns to the booth. So having worked both of those things and both of those areas, you understand how the cookie crumbles and how the sausage is made, so to speak. So you're then able to set up your teammates and they in turn are able to set you up as well. 100%. You're spot on. 
when I was with the B team back when we had A and B, we don't anymore. Yeah. Um, I worked the turns. I worked in the booth. When I had the opportunity to move to the A team, I worked pit road for a couple of years before moving back to the turns and then coming to the booth. When I came to the booth, it was when Barney Hall was retiring. I had the opportunity to work with Barney for two and a half years, side by side with him and Joe um, in preparation for taking on that opportunity. Um, so when I got to the booth, the thing that I wanted to do, Winston Kelly was lead pit road reporter. Alex Hayden was on pit road and Steve Post. Those are experts. Those are, those are people who truly have forgotten more <laughs> about how the car is built, made, yeah. runs, functions. Why would I sit in the booth and tell everybody what I think I know when I can go to Winston Kelly and have him tell everybody what they need to know. Big difference. Yeah, I can sit there and call a, a race going through turns one and two at Daytona. I've done it. Why would I do it when Dave Moody is one of the, it is the best at it. Mike Bagley is the best at it. So when I got to the booth, I just looked like the opportunity to orchestrate. I don't need to talk. I don't get paid by the word. So if I can just spread the race around, and I think Alex Hayden, who is, you know, obviously today is my broadcast partner in the booth. Um, he does an exceptional job of doing that, but he also brings that wealth of information, talent, knowledge, right, right out of pit road, right back up into the booth. So I almost look at him as being an analyst as well as yeah. being a co-anchor. And you've been doing this role with MRN for the better part in almost almost three decades, over two decades for sure. How have 25. you seen 25? So how have you seen the job that you do, whether it's in the turns or in the booth or on pit road for that matter, evolve over that time? Because looking at it from my perspective, I am 25 years old. Listening to old broadcasts and to <clears throat> broadcasts of present day, to be honest, I don't see a whole lot of difference. And I think that's just a testament to the talent Thank that you. has come through. And I, I mean, you can tell me if, it, if it's not, but I really don't sense a, a big difference in how the broadcast is presented to the listener. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. And I, I would have been heartbroken if you would have said anything different. Obviously, I didn't know what you were going to say as far <laughs> as how they changed from 70s, 80s, 90s into the 2000s. They sound the same to me, honestly. They're different people. They're different voices for mm -hmm. sure. Maybe a little different delivery for sure. But we always, you know, if you talk to Alex or Dave or Mike, it doesn't matter. Um, our coach and mentor was Barney Hall. And Joe Moore would tell you the same thing. Joe was a great, not only is he a tremendous friend of mine, he also was a coach and mentor. The fact that I was able to go to the booth with Joe, who I auditioned with, yeah. I mean, you talk That's about coming sweet. full circle, but Barney Hall would tell if, if you got off on a tangent, Barney Hall would reel you back in and say, boy or son, son, let me tell you, we, the people that are listening to you talk, want to know who's out front, 
how many laps are left to go and where their favorite driver is. If you deviate from that, you, you, you've left them, don't? And that kind of goes back to, I didn't do that then, but that was kind of the MRN style when I was doing races here at Berlin. It's like, I don't care what you had last weekend going on with your family reunion, Davey, because the average fan doesn't care. Right. They want to know where their favorite driver is, how many laps are left to go, and who's leading. And we will say that to one another. That will come up every three weeks, not forced. Somebody will bring it up. Um, and as long as you do that, tell the fan what it is they want to know. You really can't go wrong. And then if you get some personality like Dave and Mike certainly bring when they're in the corners, mm-hmm. um, Posty, Alex, then I, then I think you've got, a, you've got yourself a good broadcast. Yeah. Last thing on MRN for now, just because going to the racetrack for as long as I have and listening to the scanner at the track that you can't get when you're listening at home, obviously we talk about cracking the jokes all the time. <laughs> it's my favorite thing to listen to when I'm at the track. Do you do any studying like the week leading up to I'm different not telling dad you nothing. jokes? I'm, I'm not telling you anything. Fine, fine, I, fine. I, I can't give away. Alex and I, you've heard us say it. We write our own material. Uh-huh. Complete lie. Um, <laughs> we are not that funny. We have fun. I think if there's a difference, and this could be a bad difference, but if there's a difference between Barney and Joe, Eli and Alan, to Alex and I, it's what we do during the breaks. Um, they didn't do that back then. Yeah. You know, Barney would drop. Barney could. Barney was magical. Davey, he would listen to a broadcast, and let's say that Dave didn't have a good lap on his call, and Mike didn't have a good lap, or I didn't have a good lap, and he could maybe sense the mood not where he wanted it to be. Sure. And just out of the blue during a commercial break, and only Barney could do it, he would drop a joke. And it would have everybody, and his jokes were were A-list material, better than ours. And that would just lighten the mood, and everybody was laughing, and all of a sudden everybody was clicking and having a good time. That is certainly something that we want to do, but we try to take it one step further, and that is (laughs) to engage the fan. Yeah. we'll usually pick out fans and, and we'll give them names. We know they're listening. Yeah. Um, you know, we did it at Phoenix a couple of years ago, just very quickly. We're like, all right, how many of you are listening to our broadcast today? You know, and people are raising their hand. Not everybody does though, as you know. And uh, I said, all right, during the next commercial, I need all of you to do exactly what I say when I say it. Don't know whether anybody's going to do it. We go to the next commercial. I go, all right, all of you that are standing, I need you to, or all the, all of you that are listening, I need you to stand up, turn around and point over top of the press box. <laughs> and you see thousands of people stand up and do that. Yeah. I go, now look around and all those people who are not listening to us trying to figure out what it is you all are looking at. And you can see people, you know, they're turning around, they're looking and, it it's just fun we try to have fun i will tell you this i know you didn't ask and i'm dragging this out too long dave moody mike bagley steve kimmy alex hayden 
these are my true brothers and sisters. And I left out some of the other ones, you know, Dan Hubbard, Kurt Becker, the list goes on and on. I see them more than I see my own family. We're on the road all the time. And if we can't get along and have fun and share some memories and some moments, man, it would be an awful job. It's (laughs) not though. So they're just, they're good people. They are. And it's great to listen to you guys at the racetrack. That's my favorite. But even just, you know, I was board up in this weekend's all-star race when I was working at Sirius and just listening to you guys. It's, I mean, I, I really truly think that not much has changed in the last 30, 40 years listening to MRN race broadcasts. The people have changed. The drivers have changed. The sponsors have changed, obviously, right? But the rudimentary and elementary aspects of a live race broadcast have not changed. And I just, I think that's a testament to you guys that are, that are on the mics each and every time. So it's great to listen to. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Berlin. Um, how did this job as the GM of the racetrack come into play? I know it was something that wasn't necessarily on your radar, but when it got presented to you, you obviously jumped at the opportunity, take us through the timeline and kind of when that all happened. Well, I didn't jump. Um, I, I'd been offered this a few times and I turned it down every time. Wow. So I own uh, cars out here. This will be our 14th year of, of owning cars. Uh Um, So, and we, and we've been successful. And I think people here recognize that I have some experience. Maybe I have some knowledge to share and it had been approached before. And I said, no, every time back uh, a year ago in December, they said they wanted to meet with me again. And I said, fine, I'll, I'll meet with you. But you know, the, the one thing I can't do Davey is I can't compromise what I'm doing with motor racing network. So I said, yes, I'd already retired from GFS. I'm living the life that I want to live. I can go mow my grass. I can take the boat out. I can go do what I want. I didn't want another job, but I took it. (laughs) So I don't, it's on me. It's on me. Um, But I had to make it very clear that, you know, I'm going to be a part-time GM. I don't like that. I'll tell you that right now. Um, No track should ever run and function with a part-time GM who can't be here on Saturday nights and we go racing. I will be here this weekend. It's the first race that I will see. Our first race was April 16th. We are now looking at May 28th as the first race that I'm going to be at. That's not good. That's not good for business. You have to have a very good team. I have a very good team. I'm proud of that team. Um, We come back in and we'll sit down and meet on Tuesdays and go over things, spend the rest of the week. But I took it. Davey, because it is a passion. Um, I love this place. This is where I grew up. So many great memories here. And I believe, I mean, just like you're doing, I believe I can make a difference. Yeah. And hopefully I am. You are. I can tell that from afar. I've, uh, I've heard from some of my friends from school. I don't have a lot of friends from college that are racing fans, but the ones that I do have have talked about the Berlin fan experience, which I know is really important to you. And they've talked about how that's been enhanced and everything like that. Another thing that has been in the news as of late um, that really helped you guys was the Advanced Auto Parts Advance My Track Initiative. You guys won that for good reason, by the way. 
You got $50,000 in the bank, and I'm sure that $50,000 for a short track like you guys. Now, you guys are no short track that's struggling every single week and needs car counts and all these different things, but I'm sure that $50,000 has to help significantly. Can you tell some of the fans listening that may or may not go to Berlin on a regular basis what you guys as a racetrack are able to do with that money to help put it back into the racetrack and make the fan experience better? Well, Davey, part of that um, adventure track challenge required you to identify what you would do with the money up front. Mm -hmm. We identified three things. We identified a brand new deck. I'll cover that in a minute. Uh, enhancing our concession. We're into our 72nd year here. Man. I think those concession stands were built 72 years ago <laughs> they need to be they need to be fixed I hear you. and then we were going to do a um, create a nonprofit charity to help disadvantaged kids in west michigan through auto racing awesome i'll go back to the deck we and this is something so cool we actually just finished it we had a partner come in beta bay building concepts and if you go to berlin facebook or on the website you'll be able to see what i'm talking about or if you follow me on twitter you've probably seen it mm -hmm. we took an old broken down wooden deck and we redid that deck to be just shy of 6500 square feet it will hold over 300 it's awesome. all composite um, there's a roof coming we're not going to do it today but there will be a roof over it. I guarantee you this, if there's a better short track deck out there than what we have, I'd like to see it. <laughs> um, I'm very proud of that. Uh, we hosted our very first party out there last Saturday night because it was literally just completed. Uh, we're working on the grandstands, or not the grandstand, but, but the concession. Yep. We're working on our nonprofit charity. That's something that's very important to me. And to your point, doesn't matter if it's $10, 50 grand. It doesn't matter what it is. If somebody's willing to give you something that you can turn around and reinvest for the fans or for the competitors. Mm -hmm. And I will say this advance auto parts. They they're they're You may not hear their name every time. Like you hear some of the other prominent racing sponsors. Yeah. Advanced auto parts near and dear to my heart. Um, they've got it going on and they're running it again right now. Berlin is not eligible to win mm -hmm. because of the win last year, but I would encourage people to go to advance my track challenge and vote for your favorite track to win yeah. $50,000. It's awesome what you guys are doing out there. I've seen some of the updates and enhancements on social media. I've never actually been out to Berlin and I really want to go. I will soon. And I know that I will soon. And I, when I do, I will hit you up for sure. Uh, but I, I can't so. wait to see those enhancements in person. You guys are doing a great job yeah. there. Speaking of the charitable initiatives outside of the racetrack, but also related to racing in general, racing awareness is a cause that's very close to your heart, working with a local children's hospital out there in Michigan. For people that may not know that aspect to you and your story, can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you've done with racing awareness and, and how you're helping kids? We probably could spend an hour on it. But I know we could. I know. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the condensed version. We Back when uh, we wanted to go racing, we wanted to come up with a model. I've always been somebody that wants to try to figure out a way to give back. So what we did was we thought if we could create a race team, 
use that as our marquee. Uh, our, back then, we didn't weren't doing social media the way we do it today, but that was going to be our marketing piece. We were able to attract partners because of it. And the thing that we told our partners is if you gave us 10 grand, we'll donate more than 10 grand back on your behalf to Helen DeVos Children's Hospital. That was a promise that became scary because we had good partners. We would do it through merchandise, giveaways, raffles. We were doing anything and everything we could possibly come up with. And we decided, even though we had no um, knowledge of how to do it, we would do a golf outing. The golf outing turned out to be the biggest, coolest thing probably I was ever able to do. Um, you know, we had Rusty Wallace show up. I, I And when I do that now, I'm going to forget somebody, so I'll stop. Uh, Lomas Brown, Detroit Lions, offensive tackle, all pro. Um, they were showing up at our golf outing. And we were raising a lot of money and we were even going so far as we were bringing in a family from Helen DeVos Children's Hospital to be there on that night. It was amazing what it was amazing what the team raised. It was amazing the experience to be involved in it. Um, we've raised three quarters of a million dollars. And I know that there are people who can write a check for that. I get it. I can tell you that nobody worked harder for $750,000 than the volunteers that were associated. Um, we'd have families out to the racetrack every Saturday night, Davey. We would invite a family from the hospital to come out and be a part of what we were doing. It turned into something that I'll share with you and publicly, probably for the first time, we won 75, 80 features over the course of the past 13 years. I can tell you that I know roughly where five of our trophies are. I have our very first trophy we ever won and we won a, a big race out here um, a few years ago, I have that. Our drivers each have maybe their first ever win that drove for us. Every other trophy was given to the family that was represented when they were here that night, obviously we didn't win every single Saturday night, but you know, if the little Johnson family was here um, with little Susie or Billy or whomever, we'd invite them down afterwards and let them sit in the car and just do fun things. That's awesome. And then we would turn around and say, this is for you. You're fighting a much bigger battle than what we fought on this racetrack. And it just, I'll tell you something. There are things you do in life that are fun. There are things in life that you do for financial purposes, being a part of something greater than you and being able to see that you're truly making a difference. That's where it ends. That to me, that's number one. That's kind of what I was going to ask. You've had so much success at MRN. You've had so much success at Berlin. You had a wonderful career at GFS is Racing awareness, probably the thing that you're most proud of in your life to this point. hundred percent. No doubt about it. We, um, I, I'm going to share, I know we're going to end up going long. I'm going to tell you something that, that your listeners can relate to because it involves a gentleman by the name of Tony Stewart. 
I'm going to take you all the way back to 2003. Gordon Food Service was the, the title sponsor at Michigan for the yep. Cup Series. It was a GFS Marketplace 400. I was asked to run that event. Okay. Put together a team. Here we go. I get a phone call a couple of weeks before we're ready to go coming out of the Toledo, Ohio area about one of our transport drivers had a son that they didn't think was going to make it. He was a huge Tony Stewart fan. The young man was 10 years old. Um, and they had tried everything to get Tristan to meet Tony. Failed every time. They called me up said, can you pull this off? I said, I don't know. Get the, get the entire family to our suite um, with no promises to them. We'll put you in the suite. Let you have a great day. All right. Fast forward quickly. I make a phone call. Here's the deal. Um, Tony agrees to do it. We get to Michigan on a Friday after practice and I get Tristan and his entire family. There's 12 of them down in the driver owner lot. I still have not told anybody that Tristan's going to meet Tony. Tony comes in. He's got people with the speed channel with him. Remember mm -hmm. the speed channels probably before your time. Um, doesn't even acknowledge me. And it's a hundred degrees out there. The family's going, well, that's cool. We saw Tony. This is his RV. We've had a great day. We're going to go home. I'm like, you can't go home. You can't go home. You can't go home. <laughs> Five minutes goes by 10, 15 minutes. Speed channel leaves. We're all sweating. They want to go home. And all of a sudden the door in that bus opens up and out comes Tony. And Tony walks to the front of the bus and he points across the parking lot. And he goes like this. And Tristan looks up at me and he goes, is he pointing at me? I go, you know, I think he is. And I took his hand and I always use the cartoon analogy where I don't think his feet move, yeah. you know, just float just, over there. His, and he looked up at me and he goes, what do I say to him? I go, ask him how his car is doing. I got up there and Tony's still in his driver's suit, still sweating after qualifying, walks up to Tristan and he goes, you must be Tristan. First of all, the fact that he knew his name yeah. blew me away. He sits down on the pavement next to the bus. The two of them talk for 30 minutes. At one point, he looks at his bus driver. He goes, would you go get the bag out of the RV? Comes out. He's got a bag of stuff for Tristan. Wow. Pulls out a car, autographs the car, hands it to Tristan. And Tristan looks at him and goes, but I already have a car. <laughs> Tony looks at him. He goes, have you ever been to our hauler? He goes, we carry two cars. Now you've got a primary and a backup. I swear to this. Wow. We get all done. Tristan says, are you going to be here all weekend? He goes, no, I only have tickets for Friday. He puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, he'll take care of you because if I win, I want you in victory lane with me. Pats me on the back, waves goodbye to the family and leaves I look at, look at him. I go, how am I going to do that? He goes, You'll figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. And he walked away. That was the day that Michigan did not run their cup race until Tuesday. Oh yeah. If you remember, we were swamped with rain. Tristan was there every single day. He ended up on ESPN, believe it or wow. not. They did an interview with him out of our suite. All right. Why did I share that? It was that moment right there 
when I realized what kind of an impact people can make if they are willing to put their foot forward and try to make things happen. And if it had not been for Tony Stewart, again, that door opened a crack and led mm -hmm. to something different. If Tony would have said, yeah, I don't have time to do that. I would never have raised a penny, probably never raced a car. So it's things like that that led to where we are today. And I owe Tony Stewart all of the credit in the world. What an incredible story. Wow. I got to use that, that line about primaries and backups for my collection that my girlfriend hates that I keep growing. Gotta have two. <laughs> Gotta, Gotta have, have more two. than that. Come on. Gotta now. have, yeah. I mean, what if you wreck one, then now your, your exactly. backup becomes a primary. You got no backup. Yeah, so I mean, we're having inventory issues right now with the supply chain. You can never have too many cars, <laughs> Jeff. You know that. Agree. Agree. <laughs> That's an incredible story. Okay. I got a few more things for you and then I'll let you run. You've given me sure. so much of your time. It's been awesome. Um, yeah. You're on the road 25 plus times a year, probably for MRN going to the racetrack. You're running a racetrack again, kind of on a part-time basis is GM at Berlin and you're helping with all these charitable actions with racing awareness. How do you balance it all? And you have a family, by the way, how do you figure out when to balance certain things over the other and how do you just manage your life? Cause it seems pretty crazy. Um, silo. And I, it's not something where I feel like I'm proud at the moment. Um, I'm at Berlin, even though I'm a part-time GM, I'm here 40 to 70 hours a week guaranteed. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, I was outside last night until eight o'clock because I knew it was going to rain today. And there were some things I wanted to do to the track before Memorial day. we got a big race coming up. Um, what I try to do is when I'm here, I'm here when I'm, you know, if, if I fly out on Thursday at noon, um, I got to trade hats. That doesn't mean that my phone's not going to keep ringing and all right, of that, right. but I, I have to focus on MRN, you know, and, and anybody will tell you um, when we had our, our race, I, I don't remember where we were, but might've been Darlington. I've got my phone sitting there, got flow on, so I can see what's going on on track. Yeah. I don't study it. It's there. I mean, obviously my goal is to call a good race and yeah. to not make a mistake. It's hard. There's no doubt. Um, you know, I'd like to have more free time. I have none. Uh, at some point I'll probably have to make that decision to allow myself to have some free time again. Sure. I have a very understanding wife who works very hard to make sure that, I'm ready to go with motor racing network. I'm ready to go with Berlin. And if we decide we want to take the boat out that we're ready to go to do that, I couldn't do it without her. Yeah, I bet. All right. Well, we've come this far and we've barely talked about Spartans. So we got to end with some Spartan talk. I, I love you for multiple reasons, but most of all, it is because most people from Michigan, right? They're like, Oh yeah, go Wolverines, whatever. That's Brad Keselowski. That's Eric Jones. We, right. on the other hand, know what's good and we are spartan dogs through and through so i appreciate you for not go going green. to the other side and go white my friend hell yes i i will tell you i am not the typical spartan fan my son graduated from msu which made me an instant you know go green go white guy uh -huh. but you know people will be like so do you, and i know you're gonna hate me for this it's okay oh, it's perfectly okay david oh, you can't if if michigan is playing somebody other than Michigan State, I'll pull for him. 
I don't have a. Pro- I know I can see well, you. It's different because you're fr- you're from the state. I'm not, so it's different. I, I understand. I, and I get it. I mean, do I like Ohio State? No, I don't. I hate them. <laughs> I don't hate the people. I don't hate the people. Um, do I like Wisconsin? No, I don't. I don't like <laughs> Illinois. I don't like Indiana or Penn no. State. Um, I grew up a Michigan fan, oh. believe it or not. And my son's goal as he was going through high school was to be a Wolverine. Got the old letter in the mail that said, you're not going to be a Wolverine. And at that point, he wanted nothing to do with the Big Ten anymore. I had to say, son, that's what this is what you worked hard for. Let's go to East Lansing. Let's go tour it and um, never look back. And I will tell you this. He hates Michigan. Good. He Things worked out for the best. Good. He he does not have any love for the Wolverines <laughs> at all. Despises them. So he is a diehard, true, good, green and white young man. It's it's pretty bad for me. Like it's different because you grew up there, right? I mean, you're in Grand Rapids, I think now, right? Right. Right. So I mean, I grew up here in the D.C. area. I was not a Michigan State fan. I wanted to go to Maryland. Got that rejection letter. I feel the way that your son felt, right? Went to MSU for four years, wouldn't change a thing. And now, even when I see any block yellow M or I see a Michigan license plate holder, I, I mean, it's pretty bad. Whenever I see that, I just assume that that person's a scumbag. It, it's not good. I recognize it. But that's just what a rivalry will do for you in the Big Ten. You know. Well, and those with the block M see the Spartan logo and that's they think right. the same thing of you. And you're like, okay, fine, Perfect. whatever. Bring okay. it on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you know, Michigan Jim goes to the racetrack a good amount, right? I've seen him on pit road a few times and he's yeah. such a nice man, such a nice guy. And I just, I want to like him, but I just can't, I can't, I just can't, <laughs> I just can't do it. Alex Bowman had a Michigan car at MIS one year and I, I want him to crash more than anything, you know, <laughs> staying safe while he does it. And whenever I talk to Eric Jones or Brad Keselowski, I'm always just like, when are you going to come over to the good side? And they just, they won't yeah. do it, but I'll keep fighting the good fight. You know what? We're going to have Eric Jones here in 10 days. You know what I should do is go get something green and white yes. at the local sporting goods yes. store and present that to him. Please. I could do that. I called him out because Byron is actually closer to East Lansing than it is to Ann Arbor. And I called him out on it and I was like, hey, you're closer to East Lansing than you are Ann Arbor. Yeah. What's the deal? And he yeah. gave me one of those, well, you know, my family, nah, nah, nah. but I'm not letting him get off the hook easy. I'll you fight know the, the crazy good fight. Thing. That is changing. Don't you agree? All, you know, anybody in Michigan back in the day grew up as a Wolverine fan. Yeah. That tide has changed. Oh yeah. Um, that no longer exists. You, when I, you know, when you're walking around the mall or wherever you might be at the airport, there's more green and white in my mind today than there is Wolverine stuff. And that, yeah. you know, you go back 20 years ago, there wasn't that green and white like we see it today. So we're, we're proud Spartans. Yes, we are. I've got my, I'm, I'll have my tickets to the Breslin to go see Tom and the boys play basketball. And yeah. then we'll, uh, you know, it's tough because I want to go see Spartan football but I get about a week or right. a weekend yeah. or two during the season to make it work. And on those um, weekends, are you really just going to subject yourself to being frigid and in blizzards? Yes. Late? I mean, last okay, game good. I was at, well, I think last game I was at my, my boys and I went, I saw a picture you posted. Yeah. 
it was the snowball. I mean, we were buried in snow. It was cold. Didn't leave early. Wouldn't have missed it for the world. That's the way to do it. I remember my freshman year, it wasn't snowing, but it was, it started hailing in the third quarter. We're playing Purdue. I was a freshman, so I still was not used to Michigan climate. I was wearing just a sweatshirt that did not wick water at all and pants that also did not wick water at all. I was soaking wet. I thought I was going to get hypothermia, but I survived and we won. So all good. When you play in Michigan or Wisconsin, you know, as you know, you, you better be dressed for big 10 football, baby. You're going to be gone by the end of the first quarter. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I know you go to a lot of football, a lot of basketball games. I haven't been up for a couple of years because of COVID and stuff, so I need to get back up there. Maybe we can uh, we can make something work schedule-wise. Let's let's go to a game together. Let's cheer on the green and white. Let's fight the good that'd, fight. That'd be fun. That'd yes, be sir. fun. I like Breslin to would end, be a great place. Absolutely. I like to end all my chats uh, with my guests on the show asking them, you know, if there's anything else that they'd like to do or anything else they'd like to accomplish in their profession. So for you... Is there a race that you'd like to call? Is there a series that you'd like to broadcast? Is there some more work that you'd like to do with racing awareness? Is there a certain goal that you want to hit with Berlin? You can go in a lot of different directions here. I'll let you take it anywhere you want. I have so far and away exceeded, you know, anything that I ever dreamed possible. You know, you're, you're again, I'm, I'm pointing down here because there was a little tiny suite on the top of a wooden grandstand that, you know, we, we had so much fun yeah. broadcasting races here and then the opportunity to go to MRN racing wise, you know, sure. You could, you could dream. Yeah. I'd like to drive an Indy car. Okay. We'll be real, you know, be real. <laughs> there really isn't, you know, I, I, I think for me, if, if you ask me that question, the only thing that I would probably say is what next new opportunity, new experience awaits for a child in their family and how we might be able to make a difference because that you can win a race and you can win the next race and you can win the next race. And pretty soon you're going, okay, I I get, I know how that feels. When you work with a family, the feeling and the experience is so phenomenally different one to the next. And that never to me gets old. Very well said, my friend. You, you're you great at what you do. I love listening to you. And uh, I hope that maybe one day we get to work together. But in, in the meantime, Let's do it. I'll give you a go green. Go white. And we will see you next time. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's been awesome, my friend. Thank you, Davey. Appreciate it. And we're back. Whew, man. So much to cover there. But Jeff is a busy, busy guy, right? I don't know how he balances Berlin, racing awareness, MRN, being a husband and a father, I, I don't know how he balances it all. I can relate in certain aspects, but man, my hat's off to you, Jeff. And thank you. Thank you so much for the time. You gave me so much of it in what I'm sure is a busy week prepping and, and heading off to Memorial Day weekend festivities at Berlin Raceway. We'll be looking forward to seeing what the action's like there this weekend and having you back on the show soon, Jeff. Unfortunately, we need to talk about the all-star race. I'm not going to be too long on it just because it's beating a dead horse and I want to look ahead a little bit too, just mentally at least, to the Coca-Cola 600. But, man, the all-star race was just bad, man. It it just was. The ending was, was embarrassing in my opinion. You had the window net issue with Ryan Blaney, which was his fault. 
because he should have known the rules and he should have been communicated that there was actually a caution and it wasn't a checkered flag and the race wasn't over. But the fact that that caution was thrown, the fact that the window net thing happened, when the caution was thrown, the racing leading up to that point was just, in my opinion, not good. It just was not the best show of sport that NASCAR can be, should be, and is, in my opinion. I I know that there's a lot of different formats being floated around and a lot of different ideas being kicked around about what they can do to save the All-Star Race, to revamp it, to make it different, to make it better what it once was. I don't know what the answer is. I don't have a single solution. I, sure, I have some ideas, but all I know is that I hope that this race fundamentally changes. I don't know if that's moving it around. I don't know if that's changing the format. I don't know if it's going backwards. I don't know what it is, but something needs to change. I agree with Jeff Gluck, who tweeted after the race, one thing is for sure, it can't be back at Texas. I've said it before. I'll say it again. No disrespect to the fine folks at Texas Motor Speedway and the fine race fans of Texas and Marcus Smith and everybody that's running the ship there at TMS. It's the worst racetrack on the schedule. It sucks. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I am truly sorry, but that's the fact. And I wish it wasn't the case, but in my opinion, it is a fact. It's not opinion. And I think a lot of NASCAR fans share my sentiment there as well, unfortunately. It There's a lot of work that needs to be done to that racetrack. I don't know if it's beyond disrepair. I, I don't. But what I do know is that there should not be an all-star race there when you're trying to entertain and showcase your sport. To a lot of people that may be watching an all-star type event for the first time watching your sport, you can't have what we had on Sunday. And I hope that that does not happen again. On the bright side, we got 600 miles to watch this upcoming Sunday. I'm excited for the race, but I also realize that it is insanely long. (laughs) So damn long. And I've tooted my horn on the show and, and elsewhere for years at this point now. That the schedule's too long, the races are too long, we need to shorten everything. No race should be over 400 miles except for crown jewels. This falls in that category. This is a crown jewel. Now, do I think that 600 miles is any different than 500 in terms of equipment and wear and tear on the driver? Eh, I, I don't know. I mean, wear and tear on the driver, maybe. Strain on equipment, I don't think so. You know, 600 miles at first was billed to be the ultimate test of man and machine. Well, that's not really what this race is anymore because man has, you know, grown up with modern medicine and they can now withstand 600 miles and machine has done the same with modern technology and the machine can also withstand 600, 1,000, 1,500 miles if you probably wanted to. So I don't think that 600 miles is necessarily a selling point in terms of, well, this is a long race. You guys got to be up in shape for this one, which you do, but I think that that ship has kind of sailed, but for nostalgia purposes, for Memorial Day weekend purposes, for branding purposes, if you want to keep the Coke 600 what it is, 600 miles, sure. I'm not going to I'm not going to get my panties in a bunch about that. Would I prefer it to be 600 kilometers? Absolutely I would because I don't want to be sitting watching a race for 4 or 5 hours and I don't really know if a lot of fans in the stands or watching on TV want to do that either. I know that there is a pretty vocal I don't know if it's a majority or minority, but a portion of the fan base that is very adamant that this race should stay at 600 miles and other races, be it at Atlanta or Texas or wherever, 
should be 500 miles. I vehemently disagree with that. But I will grant you this. The Coke 600 is a crown jewel race. I think crown jewel races should stay the same. So let's not touch this one. Let, let's enjoy the race for what it is, which is something different and on America's best day of motorsports. Monaco, Indianapolis, Charlotte. I'm so jacked up. I wish it was Sunday right now. That'll wrap things up for episode 149 of Victory Lane 2.0. If you guys like what you heard here today, please, please do me a favor and help spread the word. That gets this show in the eyes and ears of more people. Leave a rating and a review. Subscribe. We're on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. You guys know where to find us by now. We should be available there for your consumption. And if we're not, drop us a line. We'll try to rectify that issue for you. Thank you so much to Jeff Striegel for coming on the show. We will be back next week to recap the action at Charlotte and chat extensively with another wonderful guest from the world of NASCAR. Enjoy racing Christmas this weekend, party people. We'll talk to you next week.